0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 42. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul um, once once wrote, If Jesus had not died, we would have no assurance that the demands of God's law were met in Christ and no foundation for believing that we are at peace with the Father. While you have your Bibles out, if you wouldn't mind, uh, take them and turn them with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is actually a text that we will actually be in in the beginning and then also we'll wrap up with as well. It uh, corresponds very well with what we're going to talk about this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're not familiar with where 1 Corinthians is, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 1 it reads, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For... I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul, in this particular text, says that I have delivered something to you that I personally have received. Right? Right? And, and, and what he's delivering to them is an explanation of the gospel that he, right, he proceeds to recite for them the earliest recorded creed that dates all the way back within three to five years of the actual crucifixion of Christ. Verses three to four are the earliest recorded creed or confession about Jesus Christ and the gospel itself. And I want you to notice the components of this confession here. Paul says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, when we think of the gospel, I know at least for me, I know as Americans we think about Christ's death and and his resurrection and we should think about those things. We should think about his death and resurrection, but but notice the fact that Paul makes a point to mention that, that Jesus was buried. This is part of the creed. This is part of the early confession. He says that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Why mention this? Why mention the fact that he was buried? It seems, if on the surface, superfluous, or at least unnecessary to bring that up because, because the cultural norm was if somebody died, you buried them, right? I mean, think about this. Someone comes up to you that you haven't talked to in a long time and they go, hey, how's your grandma doing? And you go, oh, you didn't know. She died. Oh, and we buried her. You, you, you see what I'm saying? It, it doesn't seem necessary to include that piece, piece of information. We know, right? Right? That's what happens. Either you cremate somebody or, or you put them in the ground you know, in a casket. Right? We know that typically when someone dies, there's something that you do permanently with the body. And it was the same thing in that culture. When somebody died, you buried them. I mean, think about that. Right? Why does Paul have to say that he was buried? Why couldn't he just say, Jesus died and then rose again on the third day? But Paul makes a point to mention it here. But the thing that you need to realize is he's not the only one to mention that. The framers of the Apostles' Creed, which is about 300 years after Jesus, wrote, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, or hell, and on the third day rose again. The Apostles' Creed was written to identify the key essential elements that a person must believe and confess in order to be seen as an Orthodox Christian that was worthy of membership in the church. Right? You had to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that He's the Son, that he, and He was virgin-born. You couldn't say He wasn't born of a virgin. You had to believe that, and that He was crucified, died, and buried. The same thing with the Nicene Creed, which was written as a result of the, the Council of Nicaea. They just took a little more time to clarify some things and said, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, of, of all that is, in, that is seen and unseen. He says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And then they explain a little bit more what that means. Eternally begotten from the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He, became, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and He became truly human. For our sake He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. Now the Nicene Creed was written again to further explain what we believe about Christ and His divinity. But again, notice that it makes a point to talk about not only His suffering and not only His death, and not only His resurrection, but also the fact, the fact that He was buried. The fact of the matter is, is that Christ being buried is actually an essential element in the, the gospel itself. In fact, so essential that it's mentioned in all four gospels. I don't know if you realize it. Every gospel talks about the details of the burial of Christ. Matthew 27, verse beginning in verse 57. When it was evening... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out of the rock and rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Very similar Mark. Luke chapter 23. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who did not consent to their decision and action, talking about the, the condemnation of Christ. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. He took it down, wrapped it in the linen shroud, laid him in the tomb, cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with Him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. All three of the synoptic Gospels basically tell the same story, and then John's Gospel, usually which differs in, in content, makes a point to talk about the same thing. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took away the body. Nicodemus also, who earlier came to Jesus by night, remember Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that's where we get the whole, for God so loved the world part of it, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, So they took the body of Jesus, bound Him in linen cloths and with spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where He was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since a tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there." And then obviously we have the text that we're dealing with in Mark. So the Gospels don't simply just record the fact that Jesus died. right? but they record the details of of why he was buried, how he was buried, who he was buried by, and when. The fact is that Christ was was buried is important to the gospel writers. It was important to those in the earliest uh, church that wrote the Christian creeds. And it was even important to the Reformers that we look to for guidance even today. The fact is, the fact that he was buried as part of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is what the Presbyterians lean on. And then you have Keech's Catechism, which is the Baptist Catechism of Faith. Right? And then you have the Heidelberg Catechism, which dates all the way back to 1563 and is used today by the Christ Reformed Church. All of them mention the fact that he is buried. So throughout history... It has been important when explaining the gospel to talk about the fact that not only did Jesus die on the cross, not only was He raised from the dead, but to talk about the fact that He was put in the ground. Why? Well, R.C. Sproul, in in an article uh, meditating on this this question, says this, because the Bible is the Word of God, nothing in it is included by accident. We may not always know for certain why facts are recorded and others n- not, but we do know there is a reason for every word of scripture. And, and understanding the meaning of this and significance of all the Bible's words takes work, but is well worth the effort. Thus, we should be diligent students of Scripture and meditate on its content. And that's what we're gonna do today. I mean, every other text that we've been through naturally flows. And being able to talk about the reasons why it's there, how it connects to being a disciple of Christ. This text is a little bit different. It's a historical fact that kind of stands alone. So we're going to take some time and think through this narrative, and ask the question: Why is it so important that Mark included so much detail, and why all the gospels make a point to to talk about the fact that Jesus was buried? And so we're going to we're going to seek to understand this this morning. And again, we'll we'll begin in. in chapter 15. But before we jump in here, let's just remind ourselves where we are for context. Jesus has been betrayed by one of His best friends. He's been abandoned by all of His followers. He's been arrested by His enemies. He's been wrongly condemned of blasphemy by the Sanhedrin. He has been denied three times by Peter himself. And then he has been brought before the Roman governor, Pilate, who found no fault in him, but the Jews would not have him released. And so Pilate had him brutally scourged and beaten within an inch of his life. And then they made him carry his cross all the way to Calvary, which they nailed him to it there. And then he suffered mockery and rejection by everyone. Now on the cross, Jesus suffered for three hours, suffering the wrath of God And then as we read last week, Jesus cried out in victory, right? And then after He cries out, He breathes His last and He dies. And the moment that happens, the veil in the temple between the holy place and the most holy place is torn in two from top to bottom. And after that, then there is mention in verses 40 through 41 of several women who were present when Christ was crucified. And I want you to realize I did not cover that last week because obviously... I have a tendency to go long enough as it is, and I'm not going to cover it this week because it just really doesn't fit with where we're going, but rather we're going to talk about it next week because verses 40 and 41, and actually verse 47 today of today's text is actually the context that helps us set up what we're going to talk about next week with respect to the resurrection, too many R's all at once, and so we're going to deal with that text then, we'll get it all in there. But where we are is the place in history where Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, has died. It is Friday, and Jesus is gone. So we pick things up in verse 42, and says, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. What you need to remember is Jesus died Friday. Jesus was being tried at 9 o'clock in the morning on Friday. He was crucified at noon. And then three hours later, he was dead. So roughly at three o'clock is close to the beginning of the evening time. Because if you remember, the Sabbath begins at sundown, right? The sundown that Friday evening, which is about six o'clock. And this is is part of the, the Friday ritual was considered to make preparations to spend the Sabbath resting. Right? You had to actually rest. You could do no work on the Sabbath, which means you couldn't cook food. You couldn't draw water out of a well. You couldn't do your laundry. You couldn't do anything at all considered work. You couldn't bury people. You just simply had to stay home and rest and meditate on your relationship with, with God. And you had to make those preparations the night before. Otherwise, you're going to be very hungry. Right? Otherwise, things are just going to be undone you know, during the day. Right, you had to make preparations. Well, at this point in the story, sundown is coming, and which is the beginning of the Sabbath, and that's three hours away from the moment that Jesus died, which really complicates things. Right, and then there was the Jewish law in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-one, verses twenty-three, that required that those who were executed, that they were buried before sundown. Deuteronomy twenty-one, it begins and says. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and if he, if he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. But you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man, hanged man is cursed by God. You, sh- you shall not defile your land that your Lord God has given you for an inheritance. The law required that if someone was dead, that they be buried before sundown. Right, But it was also about, the sab- about to be the Sabbath, which means right, everybody's preparing. And, and the chief priests understand the fact that, that it's about to be the Sabbath. But you still have another problem. There are two criminals on the cross that are still alive at this point. Well, they can't have that. They can't have them you know, on the cross during the Sabbath. And, and certainly you don't want them dying up there and, and staying up there where nobody can do anything about it. And so what do they do? Well, well, John tells us what they did. They had the soldiers after Christ had died break their legs so that they would hurry up and die, you know, somewhere between then and sundown. Well, we take all that, right, and we, we add to it the fact that they would probably then take all of the bodies, right, and have and dispose of them before sundown, before the Sabbath. There's a lot to do in three hours. And, and that would likely mean that they would actually take all three of them and throw them in a ditch outside of the city or just an open, um, like an open grave and let their bodies be consumed by, by dogs and other scavengers. This was actually what the Romans typically did, especially for people who were considered enemies of the state, insurrectionists. And the Jews certainly wouldn't object to them treating Jesus this way, except there was one man, Joseph. It reads in verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, as you heard in one of the other Gospels, that means he's from a, the city of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now this right here, if we're really thinking about who his audience was, would realize that this is a shocking development. This is a shocking development for two reasons. Number one, Joseph of Arimathea is not just some Jew. Right? He is a member of the respected council, right? or a respected member of the council, and that council is none other than the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus as worthy of death, the same council that handed Jesus over to the Romans to be killed. Right? This man was racing against the clock to ask for Jesus' body so he could have a proper burial. That should stop you in in your tracks and make you ask, why? I mean, the very first person who had their eyes open to the truth and declared publicly that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, was not a follower of Christ, was not a disciple, not even a Jew. It was a Roman centurion, as we saw last week. The first person to acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God was a Roman soldier in charge of Jesus' persecution. He was the first to declare the truth about Christ. That was shocking by itself. But now the only person who would go to the Roman governor and ask for the body of Jesus Christ so it could be buried with dignity was not his apostles, was not his family members. It was a member of the very ruling council that put Jesus to death. How about a shocking turn of events, right? which further illustrates the point that we made last week. All people rejected Christ. All classes of people rejected Christ. And all classes of people are welcome at the cross. If we're a church that believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, that must be our understanding. There is a movement in the church right now that is based on a Marxist philosophy called critical race theory, which does nothing but divide us into groups. And some of those groups are loved and revered and protected, and some of those groups are hated. In fact, some of those groups, by some, seem to be unredeemable, while other of those groups can do no wrong. A famous pastor this week said that he rests easier now that Rush Limbaugh is in hell. Why does he say that? Because he's a rich, white, conservative male. That's why he said it. And despite the fact that many people will attest to the fact that Rush had made a profession of faith a few years ago when he found out he had cancer, and many people actually said that he's actually demonstrated the fact that he has been redeemed and been converted. This pastor said that he's glad that he's gone. And he himself judges him as irredeemable, that God would not even dare to redeem him. While at the same time, this exact same pastor and many others in very conservative groups would stand up and say and defend the profession of faith made by um, Kamala Harris, despite the fact that she continually mocks God openly by performing same-sex weddings, right? That's just, that's just a fact. And despite the fact that she is one of the most aggressive defenders of abortion in our country. And I'm not talking about just abortion. We're talking about abortion all the way up to birth. She's made it very clear that that is her mission to fight for women's rights to have abortions, right? Why is she then given a pass and embraced as a sister in Christ, because she's female, a person of color, and a leftist. That's that's the reason why. It's the group identity. Critical race theory is a cancer consuming the church from the inside out. It has no place among any of us. All of us equally are deserving of God's wrath. We are all equally condemned. All of us are saved by the same exact mechanism, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what is it that unites us? It is not our skin color. It is not our gender. It is not our political affiliation. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what unites us as a body of believers. That's what unites us into the family of God. Because the truth is, when, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Christ, the issue of group and class identity fails. Because all are equal at the foot of the cross. Now the question we need to ask ourselves, then, is why this man, who is identified with a group that killed Jesus, why this man would request the body of Christ? I want you to notice what it says here in the text. He says that he was a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. And if you hear that language, kingdom of God, it should take you immediately back in your own mind to Mark chapter 1. In the words of Christ himself, who said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What we need to realize is that he was a believer. He was a disciple. John actually says that he was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He He believed in Christ, but he wasn't open about it with the rest of the Sanhedrin, obviously. He was like Nicodemus, who also was part of the Sanhedrin. They both came to faith in Christ, and they had believed. They were his disciples. In fact, Luke says he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and actions. He was actually part of the group, but he did not agree with the decision. He didn't vote to have him killed. Imagine that. Being a part of a group where you didn't actually do anything wrong, while everybody else did. The truth is that he was a follower of Christ, but secretly. But now the secret is out, because guess what's going to happen now? asking for the body of Jesus and, and, and taking care of this man, right? the rest of the group, that, that they deemed him as to be an enemy, what, what it would happen is they would now know and see that he's sympathetic to Christ and he was a follower of Christ. And the truth is that there would be consequences. He is now endangering his own life by trying to do what is right by Christ. But here's the thing, it didn't matter to him. As the apostles hid and ran for their lives, this man risked his own neck to secure the body of Christ. The son was going to soon sit, and there was a lot of work to do to give Jesus a proper burial, and so his devotion and his love urged him on. And with that, he requested that Pilate would grant him his body. And this... Again, it's an unusual request, because usually the people that would actually come to ask for the body of someone would be their family members, but their, their family was nowhere to be found. And, and at least people around them should have expected that maybe the apostles and the close followers of Christ would ask, but again, they were hiding. They, were, they had, had no interest in, in asking or speaking the name of Jesus at this point, because they were afraid. And so Joseph took it upon himself to handle the details. Then in verse 44, it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that, that he should have died already. Now, the reason why he's surprised is because oftentimes when a person was crucified, it took him two to three days to die. This is why it was such a horrific form of torture and death. This is why the Romans loved to line the streets with people crucified, because for several days, people would be reminded painfully, visibly, and audibly of the horror of what happens to those who dare you know, stand up to Rome. Right? So that, And so he was surprised that Jesus had died so fast. Right? In fact, if it was the middle of the week, these two other guys would have likely been left up there and not had their legs broken, where they would have suffered for a couple extra days. But Jesus is on the cross for three hours, and then he dies. Which, again, was a surprise to him. It says, in summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. But notice, I want you to notice it says, the centurion and not a centurion. This is not accidental. This is, this is deliberate. This is the same man who was in charge of Jesus' crucifixion and was the one who witnessed him die, and is was the one who then declared that he is the Son of God. He comes... To Pilate to answer his questions, and it says, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now, again, a couple things to think about. First is the fact that Jesus died so soon bears witness to the fact that he laid down his own life. He didn't. They did not take it from him. Remember, in the darkness, and the judgment of of. of of God was upon Christ. The wrath of God was being poured out on Christ. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, And then, and then God turns His face away from Christ right? because that's the reason why He was there, is to suffer the wrath of God. He suffers that and exhausts the full wrath of God on our behalf and then releases this victory cry at the completion of His work on the cross, cross, and in His own timing exhales His last and dies. Jesus died on His own terms when He was ready to do so. They didn't take His life. He gave it. The second thing we need to see is that Pilate granted Joseph's request to take the body rather than have it thrown into a ditch somewhere. This is unusual, by the way. Because remember the charge against Jesus. He was charged with treason. He was being charged as an insurrectionist because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. This was the official charge. It was nailed to the cross with him. But as we saw last week, Pilate didn't really believe that he was a political threat. He didn't believe that Jesus was really guilty of something deserving death. He believed that Jesus, you know, was innocent. He didn't think that he was there to overthrow Rome, right? Now, he wanted to have him released, but they wouldn't have him, remember, right? And so he graciously grants Joseph's request. Believe me, if, if Jesus... If he would have thought Jesus was a danger or he thought he was an insurrectionist, he would have said no. He would have made sure that his body was disposed of like all other insurrectionists and criminals. And so we can see that Jesus, he had Jesus killed, not because he was guilty, but because of political expediency. Some things never change. And then in verse 46, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. And I want you to think about this. In less than three hours, Joseph has to go to Pilate, request permission to take the body, buy a linen shroud, take Jesus down off of the cross, prep the body, lay him in the tomb, and roll this massive stone over the entrance, all before sundown really less than three hours. The truth is being rich um, gave him an advantage where he probably had people at his disposal he could hire to help him with this. Him and Nicodemus both, because it did say that Nicodemus did help him. And so they probably rustled up a team of people together to make this happen. All right. But this small time gap allows me to, to answer it, well has, has, has allowed the Bible to really answer a question for me from the past, this little time gap with which they had to work with actually helps me to kind of answer some questions i 've had before. The question i 've had before reading these gospels is if Joseph had prepped jesus 's body for burial, then why did the women come on Sunday to prep him for burial? Why did they come to take care of him, bringing spices and things like that? Well, the answer is likely because Joseph and others They're fighting the clock, having only a few hours before sundown. Even though they're doing the best that they can, probably weren't doing the kind of job that they they wish they would have had time to do, right? And I believe the women were witnesses to that. In fact, it says in Luke, it says Mary Magdalene and I mean, it it, it says actually in in verse forty-seven, Mary Magdalene and the mother of Joseph was there where he was laid. And, and Luke gives us more detail and says, the women who had come from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then it says in the very next verse, they returned and prepared Spice's anointments. See, they witnessed the burial of Christ and they probably realized we need to come back and take some time and do it right. right. These men are doing the best they can trying to get done before the Sabbath. They need to come back. And actually take their time and lovingly you know, prepare His body for the process that it would go through. Um, but when they come as, on Sunday morning, as we see, they find that the grave is empty. Which is what we'll talk about next week. But as we look at the text that we have seen here today, I want you to understand there's an important dynamic that's at work here. One that's assumed, but one that we've seen throughout all of the Scriptures. And I want you to think about this. Jesus died on a cross as a condemned man, condemned of treason and insurrection against Rome. A man who, by all standard procedures, should have been thrown into a ditch like trash, right? And had his body consumed by dogs and his body lost to the annals of history. And had Pilate believed the charge against Christ, that's exactly what would have happened. He would have insisted that Jesus disposed like a common criminal, but he doesn't do that, right? But also, had the most unlikely person, a member of the Sanhedrin, not stepped up to take care of Christ's body, he would have been buried amongst the insurrectionists. Because despite what Pilate would have thought of him, he wouldn't have cared how they would have disposed of him, right? And had nobody claimed him, that's exactly what would have happened. But here he is, right? Joseph, because nobody else was coming to take care of him. Not family, not his disciples. You see, in this text, we see several unlikely issues and events coming together in order to preserve the body so that it would not be mutilated or broken or lost to history. What this text shows us is what we've seen throughout all of Mark, the sovereign hand of God. The sovereign hand of God working through the lives and through the choices of other people to accomplish His will in order to protect the lifeless body of His Son, Jesus Christ. And understand, He did that for a reason. He did that so that we would know for certain that Jesus was buried, that His body was not lost, that His body was not stolen, that His body was not misplaced, that His body was well-preserved well-preserved by well-known people, and He was laid in a place that was also well-known. This was all done by God so that Christians from that moment forward would know for a fact that Jesus Christ was buried for certain. Was buried for certain. This is where you get to fill in the blanks now. You see, the burial of Christ is important for several reasons. The burial of Christ is important because the burial of Christ fulfilled Scripture. It fulfilled specific Scripture. It even fulfilled the words of Christ Himself, by the way. The prophet Isaiah declared that Christ would be with a rich man in His death. This prophecy is literally fulfilled in this text by the person of Joseph of Arimathea. He was rich, if you remember that Matthew records that. And He is the one who took care of the body and laid Him in His own personal tomb, at His own personal expense. Also, if you remember, Jesus taught about His death and burial and resurrection, and it was foreshadowed by the experience of none other than Jonah in the belly of the fish. Remember, Jesus was very, very clear about that. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The fact that Jesus was verifiably buried validates and fulfills the prophetic words about him. Because think about this, had Jesus not been buried, he would have been proven wrong, or worse, a liar. But he was indeed in the heart of the earth. And so the Isaiah prophecy, the scriptural typology of Jonah, and his own words were fulfilled. Secondly, the burial of Christ is important because it was part of his humiliation as a human. I don't think we think about that quite often enough. One pastor wrote that the burial of Jesus was itself an aspect of His humiliation. The Westminster Larger Catechism reminds us Christ's humiliation after His death consisted in being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath been otherwise expressed in these words, He descended into hell. You see, Jesus did not die one moment and then immediately come back to life. He Suffered humiliation, descended to the point of remaining under the power of death from Friday through Sunday. As the Westminster divines point out, one aspect of the meaning of the statement, he descended into hell, is clearly the separation of his body from his soul in death. One theologian puts it this way he said, The state of death in which Christ entered when he died was as essentially part of His humiliation, as His spiritual suffering on the cross. In both, together, He completed His perfect obedience unto death. You see, even though the Scriptures assure us that Jesus did not see corruption and His soul was not abandoned to Hades or to hell or the state of death, the important truth is Jesus has experienced the whole measure of human suffering the full range of suffering, even tasting the grave for a season. Jesus, in His suffering and humiliation, bore the full wages of our sin. And then, number th- and then the third reason the burial of Christ was so important is because it was proof that He actually died. The Heidelberg Catechism, again published in 1563, asked the question, why was He buried? And the answer is, his burial testifies that he really died. This is a really important issue, by the way, especially now, especially in our culture, because the Muslim faith, which is growing more and more popular all over the world and even in our own country, they believe that Jesus was a prophet from God, and they believe that he existed. They even believe that he was virgin born. They believe that he was special, but they don't believe he actually died. They don't think he ever died. They don't believe that He was crucified. They believe that He was switched out. Right? That He never actually died. Somebody else died. Right? Well, the fact is all the Gospels and history itself records the fact that Christ buried was buried and that bears testimony to the fact that He did die. Right? And this is super important for us because Christ's death is absolutely essential for us. The death of Christ, I want you to hear me, is essential. He had to die. You see, Christ's death on the cross ensures that sin was atoned for. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Bible makes it clear. We don't get a free pass. When we think of forgiveness... We don't always think in the divine sense of what forgiveness is to God. God, can, because He is just, cannot just take your sin and simply sweep it over the, under the rug. Something has to atone for that sin. If Christ is not dead, our sins and the sins of the world are not forgiven. If Christ did not die, we are still in our sins. And there is no hope for anyone because sin must be atoned for. Justice must be done. Jesus' burial bears witness to us that Christ did in fact die and His shed blood did make atonement for us. Also, Christ's death ensures that our sin was atoned for and the wrath of God was satisfied. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." Paul says that all of mankind in their unregenerate states are are children of wrath. He even calls unbelievers objects of God's wrath. The fact of the matter is God's anger and wrath have been stored up against mankind for His sin for thousands of years. His justice and His judgment have been reserved for those who finally meet Him face to face. And those who die in their sins without Christ will experience the full weight of God's fury and anger and justice for their sin. Why? Because He is a just God. And had Christ not died, His wrath would remain on all of us still. But as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Jesus' burial is proof that that He died, and that is proof that God's wrath against you has been satisfied. That's That's the hymn that we sing, right? In Christ alone. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. Christ's death ensures the wrath of God has been satisfied. Now, one more reason it's important that Jesus' burial bear witness to Jesus' death is because Jesus' death ensures the resurrection was a real resurrection from the dead. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepared Jesus' body for burial and he buried him in a new tomb in which no other body had been laid. These men could testify that there was no life in his body when he was buried, that he did not swoon, he did not lose consciousness, that he did not faint, as so many people like to theorize. He truly died. Therefore, If in three days He were alive, the burial proved that He had risen from death to new life. And it wasn't a magic trick or an illusion. And so the burial of Christ is important because it fulfills Scripture. It's part of His humiliation right, in being human. And it bears witness to the fact that Jesus actually died. But there's one more reason why His burial is so important. The burial of Christ is important because it is... Undisputable historical evidence for the resurrection. Again, we're coming back to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, Paul says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who are have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of all people most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection, we are wasting our time here. We might as well go get dirt bikes and right, go out in the desert right now. Huh? The truth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually the best attested to historical event in all of human antiquity. I'm going to say that again, right? Because the evidence bears that out. The The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best attested to historical event in all of human antiquity. The evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. You see, the reason why people reject the resurrection isn't because of a lack of evidence. They reject it because it's decided it's impossible for somebody to come back from the dead. That's why they reject it, not because of the evidence. The evidence is overwhelming, and a key piece of this evidence is the fact that Jesus verifiably, historically died, and He was verifiably buried in the ground. And the Gospels bear witness to a well-known, well-connected man in history who took Jesus' lifeless body, prepared that body, and laid that body in the tomb. Right, And He laid it in a place that was known to the general public, in a place where witnesses saw them lay Him. The thing is that, that the Gospels bear witness to a man who would have been asked multiple times in his life, right, was he really dead? And guess what? If he wasn't, that would be the easiest way to end the conversation and the controversy for, him, for them to bring him to court and say, no, he wasn't. And here's the thing. The evidence for his death and his burial is actually undisputed. In fact, scholars of every stripe, almost all scholars, whether they're religious or secular, agree that Jesus died and that He was buried in Joseph's tomb. And they agree that Sunday morning that tomb somehow, someway was empty. And because of this evidence, people can't say, oh, well, they just had the wrong tomb. and History just proves that wrong. They can't say, well, Jesus really wasn't dead. He fainted, and in the cool air, he revived his strength. With all of his wounds, he f- managed to move this 1,000-pound stone out of the way by himself and then prove to his, his followers that somehow, way, he'd been resurrected to new life. Right? And they can't say, well, they stole the body. <laughs> because we know from the other Gospels, once they placed the stone there, there was a seal placed over the stone, and then there was Roman soldiers stationed outside of his tomb. The burial of Jesus Christ is indisputable evidence for the resurrection. Because you have to explain. If you want to explain away the whole gospel narrative, you have to explain the empty tomb. And I want you to know, there are scholars that say, we just don't know how. It's not why it's empty. We just can't explain it. Because all the reasons fade away. And they hold on to their atheism simply because the evidence Simply, they just refuse to go where the evidence goes. But lastly, Jesus being buried sets up perfectly the victory of the resurrection. Him being buried in the ground sets up perfectly the glory of the res- resurrection. It is the perfect backdrop. What's the perfect backdrop to see the, the, the light in the night sky? Darkness. Right? Right? the darkness, because right now everyone believes it's all lost. Right now, in this part of the story, everybody believes that Christ is dead and never coming back. Right now, people's hopes and dreams have been shattered. As the darkness of sundown begins to approach, this darkness sets up the perfect contrast for the glorious dawn that is soon to come. And to wrap this up, I would like to share with you the words of the late pastor S.M. Lockridge, who wrote one of the most inspiring sermons on this subject, titled, It is Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter is sleeping. Judas is betraying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate is struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying, but they don't know that Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter's denying, but they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe Him in scarlet. They crown Him with thorns, but they don't know. That Sunday is coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walk into Calvary, his blood, drip, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirits burdened. But see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world is winning. People are sinning, evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross. They nail my Savior's feet to the cross, and then they raise Him up next to criminals. It's Friday, but let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king, and the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know it's only Friday and Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by the Father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save Him? Oh, it is Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My King yields His spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just laughing. It's Friday, Jesus is buried, a soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday, it's only Friday, and Sunday is coming. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our work.